Hello and welcome to Uncommon Law, my podcast about true stories from my life experience of over 50 years as a lawyer and trial judge. This is a look at the law from the inside out, stuff they don't teach in law school. This is Judge Rudy Greco, retired justice of the New York State Supreme Court. People pick lawyers in private practice and they want them to look good. A lawyer is an accoutrement, it's like a car, and they want to be seen driving a nice car and they want to be seen walking into court with a well-dressed lawyer, and that's very important. And that being the case, and I, I know that, it's just good business. I used to have suits made in those days, back in the 70s, and uh, my tailor was Mario from Corona, a working-class community in Queens. Mario was from Bari, Italy, the same town as Vito Antrofermo. And uh, like Vito, he was a very, very determined guy. They seemed to breed determination in, in his town. And Mario, uh, Vito was so determined, he wore down Marvin Hagler in a championship fight and beat him. And uh, Mario was determined to make a living and a success of himself. In any event, it was a cold sound like Snoopy the dog here. It was a cold, dark night. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't so dark. It was moonlit <laughs> in February in the late 70s. And it was just after a blizzard. Uh, there were over 20 inches of snow at that Saturday into Sunday morning. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, Mario's tailor's shop was damaged seriously. What happened was Cars were buried in the snow. They were abandoned at parking spaces, and they were abandoned right in the middle of streets in some cases because people couldn't move. There was just such a volume of snow, and this was before the plows or anything else got out to do anything. And apparently, uh, Mario's building where his shop was uh, in Corona was on a storefront on the ground level. It was a three-story building, narrow but deep. Behind Mario's store lived in an apartment the landlord and his wife, uh, Tony and, and Maria, believe it or not. And they lived right behind Mario's store. The second floor was occupied by an octogenarian, Mr. Accomano, a little retired Italian widower. He's the sweetheart of a man, very gentle. And the top floor was occupied by Charlie Lisa, who was a uh, bachelor and employed in the court system as a uh, court clerk in the archives in Queens County. Everybody was sleeping, and suddenly the building shook as if in an earthquake, and there was a deafening noise. Everybody woke up. Mr. Arcamano ran to his front window. Charlie ran to his front window on the third floor, and they looked down, and they saw a blue Impala Chevrolet, late model, and a young guy got out of the car, and the Chevrolet apparently had backed into the building. The young guy got out of the car, and Mr. Arcamano and Charlie both agreed he was a young guy with long hair, like a beetle haircut, dark hair, almost black. And as I said, it was a moonlit night, so they got a pretty good look at him. And he wore a blue knit watch cap, and he had a long, droopy mustache. And he, he just came out, looked at the damage, at the storefront, looked at the damage in the rear of his car. He had backed into the storefront, into the window and the, and the brick structure supporting the window, and immediately got back in his car and drove off. Tony and Maria jumped out of bed, and they came out as the guy drove off, and they saw the blue Chevrolet. They didn't see the guy. 
Tony is cursing his bad luck and the damage and the fact that it was a hit and run job. And when they got themselves together, they figured out that the guy must have been trying to get in and out of a, uh, of a snowdrift and maybe by mistake hit the gas and thought he was in drive. In fact, he was in reverse and the damage was done. Well, it didn't matter. Everybody figured they knew what happened, but they saw the damage and they understood that. There was no question about that. How it happened was one thing. But now the thing became, well, who done it? Because it's what happened was no mystery, but who did it? was a mystery. Who was that driver and where was that guy from and the car and everything else? They called Mario, who lived right nearby. Mario came within five minutes and uh, he was upset. And they spent the next few hours getting plywood and boarding up the storefront and speculating and, and, and uh, discussing the thing. And everybody went home and went back to bed. Mario called me and told me about it. And uh, I suggested that he take a look around the neighborhood. Now, Mario's store, the little tailor shop, was a uh, local civic center uh, for uh, any number of may, uh, any number of may neighbors, excuse me, including you know Mr. Arcamano, Charlie, and, and Tony, and everybody else who drift in and talk and pass the time. And Mario was a good good person. He was a hardworking guy. He knew how to work and talk at the same time so it didn't matter and um, this became a real cause uh, in the neighborhood uh, sort of like uh, the search for Red October or uh, the whole incident took on disastrous tones and they, they, they kept upping the scale of the thing and it became the, the, the greatest disaster since Pearl Harbor uh, that sort of thing and it was going to be uh, a real manhunt. Mario, I, I, as I told him, I said, Mario, look around the neighborhood. If a guy was pulling away at 3 o'clock in the morning, he's a 99 chances out of 100, it's a local guy. If you look around the neighborhood, this will happen. Well, Mario and Tony used to fight all the time, just on principle. Whenever they had these discussions in the store and whatever it was, baseball, football, whatever, uh, it didn't matter. They used to fight. But now they were united in this cause. And they became very, very determined. Mario, as I said, he was a determined guy, and he was going to be like the Canadian Royal Mounties, and he was going to get his men no matter what. And Tony felt the same way. So the two of them, who had always been conversational adversaries, were now a team. They became like uh, Sherlock Holmes and Watson, and they were all over the neighborhood, shaking up the neighborhood, looking for the car. And so were some of the neighbors and, and the other people who hung out in the store. Well, four days later, their search paid off. Mario and Tony, three blocks away, found a blue Chevy Impala with a crumpled rear. And to top it off, the rear end crumpled fender had pieces of brick embedded in the crumpled wreckage. Not to mention, Mario and Tony also brought along pieces of the plastic red taillight and, and the chrome rim of the taillight from the car. Uh, that was left behind at the accident. And they matched. So they were related. They were very, very happy. And they rang the front doorbell of the nearest building right there. And they hit a bullseye the first time around. And this lady and a little baby answered the front door. It was the afternoon. And she could hardly speak English. But she 
they pointed to the car and they said, is that your car? And she said, yes, it's our car. And now they were really happy. And she called her husband. And her husband now comes to the door and took her place. And they asked him, he said, that's your car? Yes. And sure enough, here was a guy with long black hair, like a beetle haircut, and a droopy mustache. And he was a young guy in his late 20s or so, which pretty much matched what which Mr. Argamano and, and Charlie Lisa had seen the night of the, uh, of the accident. Well, their relation was short-lived because the guy said, yes, I had an accident, but... It had nothing to do with your storefront. I was coming home from my job at JFK Airport on the Grand Central Parkway the other night, and I got involved in a hit-and-run fender bender on the Grand Central Parkway. The guy that hit me, and then I pulled over, and then the guy drove off. I didn't even get his license plate. This guy denied everything. And as we know, the denial is not just a river in Egypt. He kept denying, denying, denying. He had nothing to do with it. And when he saw that he was not pleasing Mario and Tony, and they were getting their homicidal tendencies up, he shut the door and slammed it in their face. They called the police. The police came, and they were not too enthusiastic about doing anything. They said, look, it's a traffic thing, and uh, you don't know that this guy was the guy, and he denies it and everything else. Uh, the police didn't want any, any part of it. They discouraged him and said, well, you know, you should call a lawyer. Well, guess who got the call? I got the call. The problem with the case is that there was about $4,000. Turns out there was about $4,000 worth of damage. But to have a case like that and all the expense that's entailed in court fees and, and preparation and, and witnesses and depositions and everything else, it probably cost at least $10,000 to try to get four or $5,000 in damages. And it would be very hard to get a, a verdict or a judge to, to find that you deserved court fees or anything else. It was basically a losing proposition. But Mario was a good guy, and he was a good friend of mine, and he didn't do anything wrong. And I said, you know what? I'll do it. I'll do it. Three years later, we get to trial. We pick a jury, and then, to add insult to injury, we have to wait four days in the courthouse for, the actual, for an actual courtroom to open up so that we can try the case. So I did. We tried the case. I put Mario on the stand, Mr. Arcamano, Tony, Charlie, Lisa, and two tradesmen who actually repaired the storefront, a bricklayer and a carpenter who actually did the, uh, the work to repair the storefront. And I put the Mexican guy, I called him, the defendant, I called him to the stand, and I basically crucified him. He was lying through his teeth, and I, and I let him keep lying and keep lying and keep lying. And, he, and, and every lie he needed uh, entailed another five lies to cover it up. And he couldn't keep up with his own lying. And the jury eventually caught on, started rolling their eyes, which is a good sign. I said, this guy is destroying his own credibility. So I just let him go on and, and gave him the rope and he hung himself in front of the jury. Well, Mario, on the other hand, he testified and he speaks very broken English. I speak Italian. Uh, the judge anointed me an unofficial translator. He was very, very nice about it. And Mario, although his speech, he, he, he spoke in a sing-song dialect from the area around Bari, Italy, on the Adriatic coast, which other Italians don't even understand. It, it's, it's a hard dialect to follow. But I have a good ear. And the judge appointed me Mario's interpreter unofficially. And even though Mario's language was unclear, his thoughts were lucid, 
And he was a very, very nice man. He was totally sincere and very believable. He had a nice sense of humor. The jury, in fact, loved him. And so we had some humor in, in, in the course of the, of the trial, and it lasted the whole week. Finally, uh, we started on Monday, and, and we ended on Friday. The case went to the jury. The jury went out after they got a free lunch from the state for deliberating as, as one jurors. They came back with a verdict, and that was good. The verdict was in favor of the plaintiff, totally. That was the good news. The bad news was they came back with $3,000 as a verdict, which was less than Mario actually paid uh, to repair the storefront, he and Tony. And when we questioned the juries afterwards, we did a little post-mortem and asked the jurors. It was a typical case of too much television. Jurors said, oh, everybody exaggerates. Everybody, you know, pumps up their bills and everything else, which we didn't do. Uh, so we discounted it ourselves. We knew he's asking for more than he actually paid. So we figured uh, he probably paid around $3,000, and that's the verdict we gave. Well... So it was a moral victory. However, Mario and Tony wanted to give me the $3,000. My, my, it cost me about $10,000 in, in time and, and effort and some disbursements. They wanted to give me the whole $3,000. I couldn't take it. I, I, I just chalked it up to experience. It was a good experience. I was a young lawyer, and it was good to have a trial and nice to win a trial. And um, it wasn't going to do anything. Just to save Mario's pride and Tony's pride, I, I said, okay, I'll bill you for my expenses. And, and I billed them $1,000, and they paid me the $1,000, and that was that. Weeks later, but everybody was happy, uh, even though the, the verdict wasn't as, as full as it should have been. Uh, they were happy. They were vindicated. They got justice, and everybody was pretty, pretty content about that. And I was in the store getting fitted wore one of the suits that Mario had made for me. And Mario was uh, fitting me out for this suit. And he was reviewing the case in this conversation. And he said, you know, Rudy, I make suits. I made tuxedos for Paul Anker, the singer, Paul Anker. And the, sang the, so the songwriter, Sammy Kahn, the very famous songwriter, his friend. And they have a show together. And they were so happy with the tuxedos I made that they invited me and my wife, Carmela, to the Rainbow Room to see them do their show with the suits, the tuxedos that I made for them. So Carmela and I went. He says, and I have to tell you, Sammy Khan was playing the piano and saying some stuff, and Paul Anka was singing. The people loved the show. Now, he says, Paul Anka, he's a little shrimpy guy. But when he's on the stage, he's a gigant. He says, he's a giant. He says, now you, you like a polenka. Avocado, he says, you just like a polenka. You a shrimpy guy too. My in the courtroom, dozy gigante. And I said, well, here I was. And now I was very proud because I was a man of stature in Mario's eyes. I'm, my best day, I was 5'7", you know, my tallest day in my life. <laughs> and here I was, a man of stature, like Paul Anka, in Mario's <laughs> educated eyes. And I, I also remembered, the thought came to mind, that a lawyer needs a good suit to look good, and very often, if you get a good lawsuit, that'll make you look good too. And this was a good lawsuit with circumstantial evidence and, and good characters. Thanks for listening. Come back next week for another episode of Uncommon Law, Lessons They Don't Teach in Law School. I'm Judge Rudy Greco. 
Court is adjourned.